Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back, everyone, to the Need to Know podcast. Going to talk about China today and uh, some interesting moves that they have made in the last few weeks. I'm going to start off this show with bringing back an old friend who's been on. I, I, we were just talking, trying to figure out how many times she's been on. We think this is the fourth or fifth time. Ann Kokus, who is Associate Professor of Media Studies at the University of Virginia and a Senior Faculty Fellow at the Miller Center for Public Affairs, as well as being a Wilson China Fellow. She has a multiple award-winning book, Hollywood Made in China, that we strongly urge you to check out and check out her other episode she's done for us. And welcome back to the podcast. Aaron, thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. This is, I think... I love having these conversations, one, because they're always well-rated amongst our listeners. I think that they there is a great interest in how China uses pop culture and how the United States is embedded within Chinese pop culture. And there is kind of this pushback from China to prevent some of this. So in the last few weeks, we have seen the Chinese, uh, we've seen they're, they're cutting back on video game exposure for their their younger generation they're cutting back on uh on on eating shows they're cutting back on uh somewhat androgynous celebrity characters what what is tell us what's behind all this let's start there what is behind this move to try to crack down on some of these areas yeah so this is a really interesting time and i think what we're seeing is a kind of power grab by the party to assert authority over the media and communication space. Um, In addition to those things that you mentioned, we also saw um, the Chinese star uh, Zhao Wei was scrubbed from social media. Um, Now, none of this is completely new. And this is the one this is the one who was accused of not paying taxes. No, that was somebody else. Oh, so yeah. So that was some. So so this was this is actually a a relatively common phenomenon now where um, where certain stars get um, get penalized for um, either real or perceived crimes. Um, and what's really interesting to see here is this kind of move toward a, a normalization of this type of activity. Um, now, in 2016, there was a Chinese law that required socialist core values for anyone who was um, on a Chinese on Chinese film or um, or visual media and they were supposed to exhibit those values so in some ways there are there is a kind of very broad legal framework for doing this type of for responding in this way to stars um, but it's also a very clear effort to assert the authority of the party over the entertainment sector um, during the same period we've also seen stars respond by, doing things like giving up Canadian citizenship. So there was a Hong Kong star who gave up his Canadian citizenship to kind of assert his, um, 
national identity and his his allegiance to to China. Um, so these are interesting gestures that we're seeing stars make to, in many ways, react to this increasing control. So is this really just the next phase of this core socialist values experiment that they're doing? So I think that we can see this as a very visible iteration of something that has been in the works for a long time. So I think the combination of these very specific, very noteworthy bans on things like androgynous male performers or a specific number of hours of video games per week, that those are very eye-catching because they're very specific and they, they make it seem like a very um, draconian system. But in truth, a lot of the laws to enforce those those systemic, those new regulations have already been on the books for years. Well, that leads me to a question that I was just thinking about this interview. And the thing that I kept asking myself that I wanted to ask you is how in the world do you enforce these, say the number of hours on video games? How do you enforce that across a population of 1.4 billion? Right. So this isn't necessarily going to be something that will be, you know, broadly enforceable. I mean, so it is possible to, for example, monitor um, IP addresses. The other thing that we're seeing a lot more of is the party putting pressure on specific corporations to do self-monitoring. And this is the sort of thing that happens not just in the entertainment sector, but for example, in the realm of um, party committees. So state-owned enterprises in China are required to have a um, party committee that helps to guide the corporate direction. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about things like party committees is while they're not required for private sector corporations, a lot of private sector corporations actually adopt these party committees because of concerns about market access and because of concerns about a you know, government crackdown on their, on their industry. Now, in the context of corporations like Tencent or Alibaba that are facing really intensive scrutiny, they have all of the financial incentive in the world to find ways to um, at least look like they're following these regulations because they are also the subject to they're also subject to a wide range of other crackdowns. So there's been really great research um, by Curtis uh, Curtis Milhaupt, uh at Stanford that looks at a lot of this um, how corporations in China actually adopt government regulations, even when they don't have to because of concerns about market access. So how much of this is for internal consumption and how much is for messaging to the outside world? I know when I've talked to other people my age who have kids in elementary school, when we when we talk about, oh, the Chinese are cracking down on the amount of time their kids spend on video games, they're definitely going to win. <laughs> <laughs> compared to how much our children are playing video games. How much of this is really just messaging that is meant for the outside world to know, hey, we're getting serious over here? So that's a really that's a really interesting question. And as someone who isn't a parent and isn't monitoring video games, I hadn't actually <laughs> thought about that particular angle of this. Um, so that's that's really interesting. I can say, however, that there is this that there's this phenomenon called Weishuan or external propaganda. Um, and historically, there was a difference between Weishuan and Neishuan. 
um, nation being internal propaganda. Now, what's been really interesting over the past two to three years um, is this kind of coherence of the internal and the external propaganda. So we see a lot of the kind of nationalist rhetoric occurring not just for the domestic audience, but also for an international audience. Now, on one hand, this has the benefit of turning these local local policies into things that may you know, scare foreigners, as, as you were talking about. Uh, but on the other hand, they actually present a real challenge for Chinese regulators, because by route, by rising, um, by increasing nationalist sentiment domestically in the same way that one might do it internationally, it also can create kind of groups of people that are much more difficult to control. That historic bifurcation between national internal propaganda and external propaganda has allowed for kind of saber rattling on an international scale that doesn't necessarily translate to people in a, in a domestic context asking for for greater conflict. Um, but we are seeing that, that the coherence of those two strategies is on one hand creating a more robust and kind of more nationalistic rhetoric on the part of, for example, Chinese diplomats, um, but it's also creating some potential challenges for managing populations at home. Well, and then I guess maybe I mean, what do we see coming from the Chinese people in reaction this when you start talking about pop culture things, that's a that's a hard thing to regulate for one. You're not it's hard to to change what people like, especially if you have a society that was open to a lot of these things to suddenly try to turn it around. What are the risks there for Xi's government as they try to implement this? So it's really interesting. I mean, one one example that I that I give, and not many people are sympathetic to Chinese government censors, but there is a there is a reason why one might be at this point, because on one hand, um, we see that there are you know national regulations, and maybe they aren't written as explicitly as one might hope, but there has been a historical trend of what things are what things are regulated and how. Uh, but then on the other hand, there's the response of netizens to different types of content. Um, and if they view it as insufficiently nationalistic, then there can also be pressure from the bottom up, um, which then creates this interesting double bind where regulators have to not only consider what their, what their regulatory preference is, but also what mass numbers of citizens um, are thinking about how they're responding to this. So there, there is a certain amount of um, there is a certain amount of concern about how to how to proceed, and rallying nationalist troops um, in a you know to encourage nationalist media consumption only has limited limited effect. As you point out, there are certain people who are just like uninterested. So there was media that came out um, at the hundredth anniversary of the party this past summer, um, where there was really a kind of dismal response to it and some um, some critique that it was just like not very well made. But there was also critique that it wasn't sufficient, sufficiently nationalistic. Um, and that is a really interesting bind to be caught within. Well, we always appreciate your thoughts. I wonder if uh, there's any final thoughts you have that uh, policymakers need to be watching out for. Should we Are we going to see more of these? And what do you see on the horizon? I always like to ask the over the horizon question. So one thing that I think is really interesting is the way in which the crackdown on a lot of these media and entertainment companies, particularly Tencent and gaming, 
um, is actually also a mechanism for trying to control powerful Chinese corporations. And I think we're seeing a lot of different levers that the Chinese government is using to control particularly tech corporations, but other corporations with a lot of overseas exposure. Um, so on one hand, we can look at, for example, this video game ban as it, as an effort to control pop culture and to train young people in you know more more edifying pursuits. But we can also look at it as a way to dramatically cut down ten, ten cents domestic market share and send a very clear message to them about who's in charge of their bottom line. That is a, a take I have not heard. So, and hopefully other listeners have not heard it as well. We get here heard it here first. All right, and Cocus. Wilson China Fellow, thank you so much for joining us yet again. Well, thank you so much for having me, Aaron. This is a true pleasure, and I look forward to hearing the episode. Absolutely. And we will take a break here, and we will come back with Robert Daly to talk a little bit more on this topic. Hang tight. Right. We want to turn now to our friend Robert Daly, who is the director of the Kissinger Institute on China-U.S. Relations at the Wilson Center to talk a little bit more about this. Robert, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be back with you. So I want to ask you your take on this crackdown on pop culture things that China is engaged in. Um, yeah, we were talking with Ann Kokus and... You know, one of the things that I said is, you know, if they're going to crack down on uh, video games and everything else, that's something that the American culture would not sustain. Right. We would not we would not uh, turn our kids away from video games. But, uh, you know, what does that say about Chinese culture versus U.S. culture and what, what are they driving at here? We'll give you a, a chance to weigh in here. Sure. Well, there's a, a fairly sudden crackdown, uh, as you and Ann were discussing on e-commerce e companies, uh, fintech companies, Alibaba, on fan club culture, which is huge in China. People just rapidly uh, supporting celebrities, not only with their eyeballs and clicks, uh, but with money and with all their time. There's a crackdown on gaming, on tutoring and education companies. Uh, on companies that handle a great deal of data, uh, which is an extremely uh, important part of this, on online retail platforms, and then also on other aspects of Chinese culture that might not seem related to those other things. For example, there's a big attack on what the government, government sees as uh, highly effeminate male entertainers. Um, and this is the Chinese equivalent of the K-pop boy bands that people might be familiar with. You know, young men who are uh, highly made up and highly coiffured and who dress in various shades of sherbet and who sing and dance and are extremely uh, popular. But they're also going after uh, female entertainers who are very wealthy and very popular and who may have avoided taxes. They are cutting down on English language education, all of this at once. So what are we seeing? I think there's a combination of, of three different impulses we see at work here. One is the Xi Jinping mode of governance that we've talked about, which is all controlling, is moving from authoritarianism to techno-totalitarianism, using these new tools 
that the you know, digital technology provides combined with the police powers of the Communist Party to really control everything that he possibly can uh, within the country and to especially marshal all the data, both for the Communist Party's uses and to make sure that nobody else gets the data. So yes, there's this totalitarian streak. But you asked about a cultural factor, and I think that there, there are two. One is that we also see a return to the traditional socialist virtues that were always trumpeted by the Communist Party, even Mao Zedong, and which were sometimes cynical and sometimes sincere in the Communist Party. And so this is why at the same time, they're going after the rich-poor disparity. They're going after extreme wealth of corporations and individuals and talking about common prosperity, a return to socialist roots uh, not entirely, because for most of the communist period, everybody was equally poor, but they're trying to get rid of massive economic disparity and trying to do better by the roughly 600 million Chinese uh, who still live on less than 140 US dollars a week. So there are a lot of very poor people. A number of years ago, uh, Xi Jinping said that the greatest remaining contradiction, by which he meant problem for China, was the gap between uneven development and rising expectations. In other words, he's got, to, he's got to take care of the underclass and the poor. So there's a return to socialist virtues here, much of which is welcomed by the Chinese people. This common prosperity, the sense that the uber-rich uh, are exploitative and have gone too far too fast. Xi Jinping will be very, very popular for taking those moves. Many of the Chinese people are going to support him. Now, it's interesting that so far, what he isn't doing, you think, well, if we want to um, carry out income redistribution, that you would go at tax policy, right? You would tax corporations and individuals more highly. They're not doing that. They're penalizing these people. They're charging them fines and they're encouraging them to be philanthropic, but they're not changing the tax policy yet. And the usual explanation for why they wouldn't do that is that if you ask people to pay more taxes regularly in a systematic way, they take more interest in how their money is spent and why they're being charged what they're being charged. And it tends to increase civic participation and increase grassroots oversight of government and that they don't want. So again, there's a totalitarian strain, there's a communist party socialist virtue strain, largely I think welcome. But then there's also traditional Chinese paternalistic government that predates the communist party. There has always been a tradition and even an expectation that any government in China would take a paternalistic interest in, among other things, the moral welfare, what they sometimes call the spiritual civilization of the people. And this is why, for example, when they uh, limit the, uh, teenagers to three hours a week gaming, they're widely supported by Chinese parents who, under, you know, we can understand as Americans why, yeah, we should be you know, looking at, at fewer screens. We just don't want the government, generally speaking, to tell us to do that. We want to, you know, we want to do this. This is why they're cutting down. It's one of the reasons they're cutting down on the after-school tutoring industry. One is that it, it tends to enhance inequality, but the other is that it's really harmful to children to spend their every waking moment, um, you know, getting tutored. So three strains, the, the, the authoritarian or totalitarian strain, the communist socialist strain, and the traditional Chinese paternalistic government strain. Is there a chance of this 
backfiring. If you are trying to go into the what you call techno totalitarianism, I really like that term, uh, and paternalism, but by going after some of these cultural issues that so many people like, and you know, if it's you know this extreme fandom that you talked about, is there a chance that you know you took away my my favorite celebrity that this could backfire on them? I think there are a couple of ways it could backfire, although it certainly won't backfire uh, in a sudden or a revolutionary way. Um, because as I say, Xi Jinping does have quite a bit of support, including for the paternalistic stuff and including the return to socialism. Most Chinese are not billionaires. Uh, but yes, there, he is going to run into some countervailing winds for sure. We already see a lot of ordinary Chinese at the grassroots who are pushing back against some of the things that the state would like to do. We've seen uh, in particular women over the past few years pushing back in various ways uh, against patriarchy in Chinese culture, uh, but also pushing back against you know, the, the, the chauvinism of the state. Uh, the Chinese Me Too movement won't go away. Uh, all the evidence that we have, which is not great, is that sexual harassment and domestic violence against women in China are extremely high. And so women are trying to be heard. Uh, female rock stars are singing about these issues. Female stand-up comedians in China are also talking about how women are treated by men under, under you know, the modern dispensation in China. So they're pushing back. The young are pushing back. Xi Jinping, who faces uh, a big demographic problem as the country uh, ages, first told all the Chinese people that they could now have two children instead of just having one. Well, very few did. He couldn't increase birth rates. He then rather oddly said, well, okay, then you can have three. Well, you know, if you don't want two, the odds that you'll say, okay, I'll take three, fairly unlikely. Um, so that hasn't worked either. He can't, people are marrying later, uh, delaying marriage, delaying or opting out of births altogether, despite the exhortations of the Communist Party. So people are, are voting with their reproductive systems, in essence. Uh, the young people who have been working very, very hard to build up Chinese private industry and tech industries, what in his book, uh, AI Superpowers, Kai Fu Li called the gladiators, people who are willing to work uh, what we call 24-7, the Chinese call it 996. 996 culture means nine in the morning to nine at night, six days a week. They have been protesting against that. They don't want to work these long hours. And Xi Jinping has been supporting that. We have seen among a lot of young Chinese people something called the lie flat movement. Uh, and these are just slackers who are opting out of the rat race altogether. They would rather stay in their rooms in their parents' apartments. The older also pushing back against government programs. One of the ways that, that Xi Jinping uh, wants to forestall the aging of the Chinese population is by telling the Chinese people, to work longer. China does have very young retirement ages. Most women retire around 55, men around 60. If they push that back five or 10 years, you suddenly got more working age people and fewer retirees. But younger people, I'm oh, sorry, older people are pushing back against that. They said, we were promised a pension and a deal by the government and we don't want to work longer. So we're seeing this again and again at the grassroots, gig workers who want better working conditions. Many netizens, people on the internet in China, who are actually protesting aspects of the surveillance state who are calling for privacy and less use of facial recognition. So again, they're not calling for Western style human rights. 
And they're not revolutionaries, but they are pushing back uh, in ways that the government has to respond to because they're so pervasive. Now, it's not institutions that are pushing back. Universities, think tanks, uh, media, cultural entertainment types, they have all been shut up by the party. They are either getting on board, falling silent, or leaving the country. Uh, but there are people who, so you, know, you asked about tensions. There are people in China who like the economic development. They, as nationalists, they like China's growing status. But they are also calling for a more modern and more humane China. And so he might very well, Xi Jinping, by pushing on all these fronts at once, probably will produce a greater number of you know, discontents. My final question to you, you are very good at framing how American policymakers ought to think about this stuff. Uh, and when I when I get you into classes that we have for congressional staff, you're very good at posing the question of how we should be thinking about China. And I want to ask you that question with this situation. American policymakers are watching not only this, but a lot of things that Xi Jinping has done over the last several years. Uh, I feel like there's a... Uh, a feeling among American policymakers that this is a move to a much more authoritarian state in China and possibly as a threat to the United States in Asia, at least, at least in that theater. So how should American policymakers be thinking about this? Right. Well, I think they should ask some of the questions that you were just asking, which are essentially about uh, pressure points, uh, fractures within China. What our discussion today, I think, has pointed out is that China is still changing. An awful lot is contested, questionable in this very vast country. Again, one fifth of humankind, and it continues to change. And there are many pressure points. And so what that means is that China, as worrisome as it is to us strategically, uh, is, is still a place where there is tremendous fragility and tremendous change. And we need to, in our assessment of China, stay alert to these, uh, to the grassroots, to these fragilities, to these pressure points, because they tend to slow the government down. As I said, the government is making big moves. There's going to be, uh, there are going to be headwinds. They're going to have to respond. So there are many ways in which China is changing, in which China is constrained, in which China is fragile, despite the many, many ways I want to emphasize in which it is worrisome. So we're, we shouldn't be thinking of China as this inexorable monolith that is just Xi Jinping's tool and respond to it uh, in those ways. We need to attend to what's going on at the grassroots to see where our opportunities may be. Because so many of the Chinese people are, again, not revolutionaries. Uh, former Secretary Pompeo seemed to imply in his speech at, at the Nixon Library that America could find a, a lever in which you could pry the Chinese people away from the government and sort of get them to seek regime change. I don't think that's right. At the same time, a lot of these people are influenceable by the United States and outside powers, as well as China's own changes. And we need to talk to the Chinese people through public diplomacy. All they've been hearing from the United States, the Chinese people, are insults and attacks. And that tends to strengthen their support for the state. There's a saying common in China uh, that I can talk about or criticize my mother, but you sure as hell can't because she's my mother, right? And this applies to the government too. So that when all they hear 
are attacks or smears on China, it tends to strengthen their support for the government. What we need to be doing is through our public diplomacy and our diplomacy generally, there's a lot of talk about how we have to uh, more greatly resource the military. And that may be true, but we also need need to more greatly resource diplomacy. We need through public diplomacy to involve the Chinese people in an international dialogue about human well-being, regional and global orders, the relationship of individuals to government, technology, corporations, the natural environment. It is by inviting them in and involving them in that global conversation, not by attacking China, that we get a hearing for some of these, from many people in China and have a chance at continuing to catalyze China's development as we have for the past 40 years. We can't direct China's development. They're they're gonna develop in their own time and fashion. But we have had a profound impact on China over the past 40 years through our involvement. And so one of the things we need to do is try to continue that involvement in any way we can while still being very protective of our international interests. Pay attention because China's still changing. Now there is just lastly, because I think that some of our uh, listeners may think that I've been painting an overly rosy picture of China. What if Xi Jinping succeeds in all of these campaigns? What are we talking about? And I do see a very worrisome, but I think legitimate way of connecting the dots in all of these different campaigns. Uh, he is now, there's a, we've got a rapid military buildup. We've got a, the government, that's one dot. We've got the government saying that we have to assert China's rights amidst a strong external threat, the West and America in particular, that's another dot. We've got Xi Jinping calling on the Chinese people to do these things, build the military and assert their rights based on a form of nationalism, which is founded in a sacred culture of China. We're also, we also have calls, another dot of unquestioned loyalty to a beloved strongman leader. Then here's a final dot, and this may sound small, but I think it's worrisome. We also have the government now actively promoting a certain brand of masculinity as a key to national power. So those dots, you know, the military, assertion of rights, nationalism, sacred culture, unquestioned loyalty to a beloved strongman leader, and an explicit program of fostering masculinity of a certain kind, Uh, as a key to national power, we haven't seen this since Europe in the 30s. Um, There's an increasingly fascistic overtone to these moves that I think we also need to attend to. I appreciate the mapping out that dot network there because there has been a lot going on over the last several years. Um, And there's been a lot of talk about, you know, she's consolidation of power. But when we line it out like that that makes it a pretty interesting situation so robert daly director of the kissinger institute at the wilson center thank you so much for joining us yet again you're always so willing to join us on this podcast really appreciate all your help oh it's a great vehicle i'm glad you have me thanks 